Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 142nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Matt Oxley. Matt is the founder and CEO of the Oxley Institute, which does primary research into affluent investors and how they select advisors, and then provides financial advisor marketing and sales consulting and coaching on how to leverage those research insights to grow their firms by reaching more affluent clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about how to reach and connect with affluent clients by forming better relationships with them. From why knowing the names of a client's children and pets really is so important in the relationship building process, to the reason why having non-business social lunches with clients are what Matt calls a $1,000 per hour activity and are so effective to deepen the relationship and get more referrals, the importance of doing intimate events with a small number of key clients at a time in addition to broad-based client appreciation events, And how in the end, the point isn't merely to become friends with clients, but that social interactions with clients are really all about having opportunities to demonstrate that you're worthy of their trust to continue working with you and hopefully to refer you as well. We also talk about how to bring better structure to your client relationship building efforts from developing a relationship calendar of the key activities you intend to engage in with your top clients throughout the year why it's so crucial to focus relationship building activities on a subset of your top clients instead of trying to reach everyone at once, why you should target one surprise and delight opportunity with key clients every week, the right way to ask for referrals without just asking for a referral, and how even as advisors try to engage in more social relationship building activities with clients, it's still important to go into those meetings with strategic intent for success. And be certain to listen to the end, where Matt talks about what he calls the three C's of good client communication, be concise, conversational, and confident, the reason that advisors tend to get stuck in their businesses, and his advice to new advisors entering the business on what it will take to be successful in the future. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Matt Oxley. Welcome, Matt Oxley, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, it's great to be here, Michael. I'm I'm looking forward to the episode today. You you are, I think, one of the very unique people that I've I've come across in the industry over the years who kind of lives at this intersection of doing coaching and consulting with advisors and doing a good deal of your own research, your own kind of primary data gathering out out to the world to actually like really analyze and quantify and understand like this this thing that you're that you're coaching and working on you know you spend a lot of years around what it really means to work with affluent clients you've wrote a book on it you've consulted on you published research on it and so you know like being the nerd that I am (laughs) we run the nerds IP blog like I always appreciate the fellow nerd that wants to go a little deep with the data and and then figuring out how to apply it and so I just I'm really looking forward to the to the conversation today and talking about all the things that you guys have done and learned from, you know, what you find in the research and then what you put into practice with all the coaching, consulting work you do with the advisor world. 
You know, the research is, is to me, it's fascinating, and, and it, it, it really evolved. I mean, back when I was getting an MBA, we I did statistical analysis, and I used to do some of the, you know, I was always fascinated by research, but I remember vividly, you know, sitting in a number of conferences years ago, almost 30 years ago, where I was getting ready to be introduced by a senior management, and they all talked about targeting the affluent, what the consumer wants, and they'd use the word affluent regularly. And I'd be sitting there looking around the room at the advisors, and and I kept thinking to myself, I wonder really what the affluent are thinking about all this. And that was sort of the, the beginnings. One was a group of insurance agents, and the other one was a group, back then they called them stockbrokers. And, and that's, that, that's where I began this sort of, you know, I started with the research on, on the affluent you know, investor, you know, the, the, the client, and then it quickly determined that I also needed to be researching, you know, the industry sales force, the insurance agents, the stockbrokers, which will now bundle together as financial advisors. And, you know, it was it, it, it was fascinating because you see what the affluent are looking for, what their responses are. And year to year to year to year, you know, not that much changes, but you see trends. And then you see what the industry is doing and you see what the firms are promoting, you know, and wanting their, you know, managed money. Remember those days? Everything was about fee-based business. You know, well, back then our research was saying that, uh, and it still says it to this day, that the affluent wanted a financial professional, someone such as yourself or some of the advisors we coach, to really oversee the multidimensional aspects of their family's financial affairs. They really didn't care how that financial professional was compensated. They would pay, pay fair value, you know, fair price for fair value. And yet the industry is just pushing everybody into managed money. You know, so you have all this, you know, you have like an annuity coming in, you can come to the office, and you don't have to do that much. So how, so how do you account for that distinction then? I mean, I, I feel like you're sort of making the case that, you know, the industry is pounding the table and say consumers want like assets under management model and these holistic relationships. And you're sort of saying like, yeah, well, not really. Or like they, they sort of want the holistic thing, but, you know, a- AUM is more like the cost of doing business than than like a, a consumer demand. Precisely. And, you know, the best advisors that we've seen over the years understand, you know, that the firms are sort of, they have their marching orders and they have their agenda. And each individual financial advisor really is a standalone entity and they have to develop, you know, the relationships, you know, that they see fit and they need to provide the services that they think their clientele will value to their clients and not just necessarily how are they getting paid you know but you know what what's the you know what's the overall depth and breadth of that you know client advisor relationship and the best of the best have always done that and they real they realize you know the money will come the money follows yeah it, it's one of the things that's fascinated me is you know the industry has all of its debates around the shift to fee base and 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 sort of the concomitant shift to to fiduciary models and the AUM model overall. And, you know, I, I feel like every now and then there's like, so we have all these industry discussions and every now and then there's a, a consumer study that comes out that just actually talks to consumers, but like, how do you want to compensate your advisor and like, which stuff matters to you? And I'm always stunned when, when these, 
re- well, I don't know if stuns right word, but like a, it's always surprising to me or shocking to me when the when these studies come out and what you what you see in that research over and over again is you know, if you ask the average consumer off the street, fee is a bad word. Like no one likes paying fees. No one likes the more like, you know, I think what I need in my life is paying more fees. Like fees we hate. Fees are things that airlines and banks do use against us to make us not do a thing. Like you want to know how to get people to not bring pl- bags on the plane, charge them a fee and make them pissed off. And then they won't bring the bag on the plane. Like, you know, fees are a way that we make things more salient, more tangible because we dislike them so much. We stop the behavior that usually the institution didn't want you to do in the first place, or at least they make darn sure that if you're going to bear the fee, uh, they're going to make a whole bunch of money off of it. And so it's 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 only in our world where we kind of tried to turn this label around or use it in different ways because you know, the indirect effect to me that happens, which I think is is actually more notable and and more significant from the consumer perspective is what does happen when I shift to an ongoing fee-based model is if I want to keep getting my fees, I better do some good stuff for the client. And so you do create this pressure that says like, well, I can't just say I'm holistic. Like I have to keep showing up every year and doing some stuff or the client's going to ditch me. And that doesn't happen when I get paid all up front because frankly, I got paid up front. It doesn't matter whether I show up again. And so I do think there is a you know, a, a, an incentive shift for the advisor to say, you better keep coming back to the table and adding value to the client, or they're going to fire you. And that when we do that, well, we accumulate clients, they don't really very often you, you know, gather clients and keep a 97% retention rate. And after 10 or 20 years, you're gonna have a whole lot of clients and a whole lot of assets under management in a pretty sizable business. But it's, it's not necessarily like a table pounding consumer demand. If only I could find an advisor where I can pay a whole bunch of fees. It's much more around just this happens to be a model that works well for giving the advisor an incentive to keep doing lots of holistic stuff on an ongoing basis. And as you you said in your research, like it's the holistic someone to oversee the multidimensional aspects of my family's financial affairs that actually becomes the binding service. And, and you know, you're so spot on. And, and and the reality is, you know, the firms have done a really poor job or the industry doesn't really understand, you know, the soft issues that are involved in true relationship management. They throw the verbiage around very loosely, but, you, you know, you can't coach and promote what you don't really believe in. And if you don't really believe in it within your own personnel or, or you know, your own swim lane, you know, it's it just rings hollow. I mean, we have 20 years of research, Michael, that says when an advisor expands the relationship to include sort of an emotional connection, a personal uh, relationship outside of the business forum. So I know what your children are doing. I know the names of your dogs. You know, we have a cup of coffee once in a while that has no business involvement. That there's three times more penetration into that sphere of influence. They're six times more likely to consolidate assets. You know, they're far more likely to spread word of mouth influence on your behalf. And they become basically an ideal client. And we've been singing this song now for years. And, you know, advisors, I mean, the real good ones get it, but it's work. They can put structure around doing a financial plan. They put structure around, you know, the professional side of the relationship, you know, having review meetings. 
but putting structure around expanding the relationship so they have a book of ideal clients, that's a little bit foreign to them. And they're challenged with that. So this, this kind of brings to mind two questions. The, the, the first is, I don't know if this is a question as much as I don't know, maybe even a little bit of a lament. Like I'm, I'm reflecting back to my early days as an advisor. I wanted to go learn my stuff and get smart because I wanted people to hire me because I was smart and I knew some financial stuff that would help them get on track. And, you know, I think I felt some frustration early on. And, and I know a lot of other advisors, the similar frustration of like, I don't know, it's, it's almost sort of this incredulous, like, Really, I have to know the name of their kids and their pets. Like that's what's going that's what's going to get my six times wallet share, not actually just giving them better advice than the knucklehead up the street who knows nothing about finances but happens to be good with names of kids and pets. Like, is this just the reality I have to accept? Like, how do I how do I reconcile this? Because I, I I think virtually every good advisor has had the experience of being in a competitive situation for a client with an advisor who is absolutely terrible at anything that actually has to do with advice and money, but they seem to be good at this other stuff that you're talking about and you can't pry the client away. Yeah. But you know what? That's changing. That is dramatically changing because, and especially in the world of the affluent, if you're just good and you know their kids and you're good with a smile and a joke, that's great. But word of mouth influence is going to be as it's going to be. You know, Matt's a great guy. He's fun to meet at a bar. Good to you know play tennis with. But you know, uh, I wouldn't probably have him handling my family's finances. So you got to be both. You got to be smart and really good at what you do and build that team around you. But once you do that, that's the hard part. You know, the, the soft issue, you know, the, I say this very sincerely to advisors, the affluent have given you a gift. They're basically saying, please mix business with pleasure you know, mix professional and personal. And it's not because they want their advisor to be a friend. It's because it's all about trust. You know, they, they, they're a very skeptical species. They don't trust advertising. They don't trust a lot of the professions, what we're seeing now with all social media, fake news, politics, you know, you name it. And so, you know, once they get to know somebody on a real personal level, that elevates trust. And it's just amazing, you know, how that relationship shift transforms, you know, that the loyalty of the client, they become extraordinarily loyal. And another thing, Michael, that has been fascinating to us is the disconnect between financial advisors. We've been asking this question now for well over a decade. How do you view the relationship with your affluent clients? You know, is it a good professional relationship or is it expanded to have this personal component with a, you know, sort of an emotional connection? And the data points change a little bit from year to year to year, but as a whole, you know, it's, it's about the same gap. Advisors will come back and say anywhere from 68 to 75% have this expanded holistic relationship. Yes, the clients, in a, in, you know, these parallel research, probably the same question, and about 28%, 26% say they have this expanded relationship. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's almost like we define relationship differently. 
I, I think you I think you make a fascinating point here that when you said like it's not it's not literally about the social relationship. Like it's it's not that, you know, your your affluent clients need to buy another friend and they've chosen to buy you. Like it's 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 not actually literally a social dynamic per se. It's about trust. And that the way we form trust with other people, or at least one of the ways we form trust with other people is by doing things with them socially, is by breaking bread with them. It 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 becomes an opportunity to turn that relationship into a more trusted relationship by just literally showing up and acting like a reasonably trustworthy human being that that begins to build those bonds of trust. And and I think it's 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 a very interesting framing just to say like not to ask how often do you you know, go out and do social coffee or other events with your clients to have a social relationship with them, but how often do you break bread with your clients as a way to reinforce the trust relationship that they have with you? Exactly. Because, and then when you get into the neuroscience behind it, when you break bread like that and you, you know, you're asking me, Hey Matt, how's, you know, your son Patrick doing out in, in California? He's in San Diego, right? Well, you remembered my son's name, you know, he's out in San Diego. It's not like, Hey Matt, how are the kids? So, so you know who I am. You've heard me. Right. You, you and remember it's personal me. You pay to attention. Me. You care. Exactly. And that, and what that does, it stimulates oxytocin. You know, we all have this, and and that that's that's the trust vibe. So it's stimulated by having a nice convivial break and bread together, but it's also stimulated by having these, you know, real personal, emotionally connecting conversations. And it's fascinating. It, it is. And so, so in the follow on to this that you, you mentioned briefly earlier that I want to come back to is that, you know, not just this dynamic that being social with clients isn't actually just about being social for the sake of being social. It's because social engagements are an opportunity to build trust. And then you had mentioned like, I, so ideally we don't just do these things. We put structure around it. Precisely. So and that's the talk about yeah. what that, what that means. Well, we, we recommended advisors. I mean, just the same way they handle the professional side of the ledger sheet. So if you draw, draw a line down the center of the paper on the left side, you have all your professional touch points with your clients. You have the number, you know, your professional calls, your professional face-to-face -face reviews, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other side, you have a relationship calendar. When was the last time that I sat down face-to-face -face with Matt and Sandy and uh, had a lunch, a non-business lunch, and you know, asked them how Patrick, Heidi, and Amy were doing, or talked about you know where they're going on vacation, what's their next big trip coming up, and shared a little bit of what my next big trip uh, is going to be or what my children are doing. And so it's it's having we call it having a relationship calendar you know so you you, you got to schedule these things and, and you have to track it in the same in the same manner we we created a relationship index michael so you know and and i'd like to say everybody we coach uses this relationship index but they don't you know? <laughs> the joys of the joys of coaching <laughs> right but those that do i mean it's because what it does is on an excel sheet it moves the needle in all these touch points that our data has said that strengthen the relationship you know it moves the needle and if you get that needle into the green 
mean, you know, there's a high probability you have an ideal client. And when you have an ideal client, if you ask that ideal client to introduce you to their business partner, they're going to introduce you. In other words, you're gonna, they're going to help you grow. They're going to help you market. So can you talk about what these behaviors are? Like what, what, I mean, we've sort of tossed around a few, like just have lunch with them and it doesn't have to be a review meeting. Just have lunch with them. Like, well, you what? know, it's, it's funny, funny about lunch. And we've, I've been saying this now for over, you know, well over a decade once we, you know, the, the number one social activity that has the highest direct correlation to a new affluent client coming into your business is a social lunch. Specific. Does it, I just got like, does it have to be lunch? Like, is, is there actually a phenomenal, like lunch works, but you know, breakfast or dinner don't work as well, or coffee doesn't work as well as lunch? No, no, they, it, it, any, anything, you know, the second is, so 65%, you know, is a 65% hit factor on a lunch and a 59% on doing something social with the client. Now, I mean, it's just probably the way we ask the question. And I get asked that a lot about breakfast, but think about the dynamics. Breakfast is usually a quick, we got to have a quick breakfast before we get into the office. Lunch is a little more relaxed. You know, you're, you're getting out there and for an, once an advisor recognizes that a two-hour lunch with a good client is two hours of high impact activity. It's like we call it a thousand dollar an hour activity because you're going to strengthen that relationship. You're going to consolidate assets. You're going to be, you know, uh, they're going to mention people that you should meet that could potentially become clients. I mean, it, it's all good, but you know, it's just, it's just a different mindset. And, and we, we highly, I mean, we, we recommend, I mean, one social lunch a week. What advisor couldn't do that? It reminds me of, was it, there's a book out there, I think, uh, Never Eat Alone. Just the whole theme is like, what, whatever you're doing, don't, don't eat alone. Find someone to eat with. It's social and builds these relationships. But you have to do it with, and this is another phrase that we use all the time, Michael, you have to do it with strategic intent. You just don't start having social lunches. You go to that social lunch with a game plan. So if you're having a social lunch with, with me, let's say, and you've never really had a social lunch before and you, with me, and you don't really know my wife, Sandy, so your objective in this lunch is to make sure what's Sandy's favorite restaurant for lunch and make sure she can attend lunch and you're promising it's going to be no business because Sandy might not show. It's just going to be, you know, we're all going to just going to catch up. And so your strategic intent is to connect with Sandy. That's your game plan for the lunch. Simple as that. And if you can connect with Sandy, you know, I mean, and, and this is, you know, one of the trends that we've seen is the, the gender shift that, you know, most advisors haven't done as, uh, you know, the job they should have done is connecting with the woman of the household. And that's a big deal. But I mean, I'm using that as a, for instance, you know, or. But, uh, you, you know, know you most clients and, we you know, have, I mean, we always see this, right? The, some spouse is the dominant the dominant spouse in the relationship, the dominant spouse in the finances, at least, you know, age, gender stereotyped a little, you know, we, I mean, we still see it for our retired clients, you know, the, the, the husband managed the balance sheet, the wife managed the checkbook, like just that's the reality we see a lot. It's almost, you know, I, I see it's sort of almost the iceberg too, though, you know, in the surface, the macho man, he handles the finances, but behind the screen, you know, 
So how much money did this, do we pay that guy last you know, year and how much did we lose? I mean, you think this is really a good idea? <laughs> do you think that uh, this, this you know, financial advisor really knows what he's doing? You know, that's the conversation behind the curtain. You know, but anyway, the strategic intent goes every, everywhere from maybe I have a good relationship with both of, you know, both Matt and Sandy, but I really, I, I really need to find out, you know, who they play with, who's in their spheres of influence. Because I want to meet some of these people. So I want to uncover a name and, you know, just get. And so you go to those lunches with a game plan. And I guess this is just sort of a things we learn to do well socially over time, like how to go to lunch with a game plan and not make it so blatantly obvious to the clients. Like you're just you're just having me at this lunch because you're trying to get the name of my business partner. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we, we tell it. I mean, the reality is. You know, people love talking about themselves. They love talking about their family. They love talking about what they do for fun. And you have to be genuinely interested in it. And when they talk about, you know, what they're doing for fun, they're they're going to just as easily talk about who they do it with. And if you're emotionally connecting like that, that's a natural conversation. You know, so it has to be done. It has to be done conversationally, though. You're you know, so right. I was going to say social activities, but I guess you should really say like trust building activities. What are there other kinds of things we should be watching for of opportunities to reinforce this trust relationship aside from the the social lunch for however many clients I can get out for social lunch? Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, you know, we we highly encourage advisors. We have a know your know your client, know your center of influence worksheets, and so you're you're there trying to compile as much you know, information, intelligence on that client, you know, everything from their favorite restaurants to, you know, the charities they support, you know, to, you know, you, you name it, uh, their alma maters to where the kids are in school, all these things. And then, you know, we call it surprise and delight. But, you know, every, you know, we highly encourage every weekly meeting for every, you know, financial practice on the agenda, there, there should be a surprise and delight item. Are there any surprise and delight opportunities in the near term? So whether it's your top tier client or whether it's a, you know, a CPA who's a good referral source or, you know, it, it, do they... Do they have it? You know, is somebody in their family just graduating from college? Is somebody just going off to college? Has a grandchild been born? Are they taking a major trip somewhere? Did they did they lose somebody in their life? Is somebody you know is, is there any trauma going on in their life? Did they lose a pet? Did they get a pet? I mean, all those things really garner up an opportunity to have a nice little personal touch and a surprise and delight. You know, would be. If you're talking to my wife and you're asking her, how are Mickey and Rusty doing? Well, Mickey and Rusty are her two little shih tzus. And she'd tell you all about her two little shih tzus. And she'd tell you all about when they last were groomed. And if you asked, hey, hey you know, text me a photo of them. I want to see them. You'd have that photo in a heartbeat. And all you have to do is at some point, you know, send her a couple coffee mugs with those dogs on it. And that's a surprise. And I mean, I wouldn't be able to fire you if I tried. Drinking out of the coffee mug with the picture of the dog saying, like, you want to fire who? Uh Right, right. (laughs) But, But that's assuming you're doing a great job, you see. I mean, doing a good job of what you do. And this is what is important for advisors to process. That's not a value add. 
The fact that you're really smart and good at what you do is no different than my cardiologist is really smart and good at what he does. You know, I don't want a bad cardiologist, you know, and, and so it's a hygiene factor. It's not a value proposition. I expect, you know, financial planning, you're a CFP, doggone it. You know, I, I expect this is your expertise. And, and so what happens is that advisors go to great lengths trying to profess that they're smarter than the next guy instead of just experiential demonstrating their better and more professional and more personal and more trustworthy, more relatable than the next guy. And the brains part of it comes out as well. I, it does, and and I I think you make an interesting point around right the, the the fundamental distinction between saying you're better, more professional, more trustworthy, right? Like in our environment, like more, more fiduciary than than the other advisor, versus just actually doing it and showing it and living it. Exactly. This is what we do and how we do it, and this is why. Now, what's important to you? <laughs> you know, and and you know, if, and you know this. I mean. Most advisors talk too much and listen too little. And that's just an old, I mean, it's, you know, how to win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie. You know, we got to ask more questions sincerely and listen. Yeah, the old, you, you have two, two ears and one mouth, use them proportionately. <laughs> right, right. So, so what are, I, I, I'm just fascinated now by kind of listing these items of like, what else you put in this, you know, relationship index of stuff. So we have our, our social lunches, we have our surprise and delight items. Like what else am I like putting on my relationship calendar of things to do to support that? You, 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 yeah, you, 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 so you have, let's say a non-business lunch, a social lunch, and then you might have, you know, sort of quarterly, you might have some little fun events, you know, uh, that you have with a hand select number of clients. And so the, these people are also on your invite list for whether it's a wine tasting, whether it's a, a sporting event, whether you have tickets to the theater, you know, we, we you know, this, we call this intimate events. And what, what, what our data has shown is, you know, back in the days where public seminars were the thing, well, the number one activity that an affluent client will attend is a fun, intimate social event. Not a big bash, but a small, intimate social event. And the number one venue that they will, you know, bring a, a good friend of theirs to attend would be a non-threatening, you know, good, fun social event. Whether it's a wine tasting, whether it's a cooking class, whether it's just an out backyard barbecue, you know, you have to know your clients. And so that, that goes into the uh, relationship calendar as well. You know, what events are we having? Who's being invited? So I'm struck by this because I feel like it's, I know, at least for the, the, the world of uh, advisors that I see, that's kind of the opposite of what I see a lot of firms doing these days. And what they're doing instead is if they're doing events for clients, they're doing big events for clients. They're doing, you know, the the proverbial client appreciation events. We're gonna, you know, get a nice restaurant in town, take the whole restaurant down, we'll bring out you know, 50 or 100 or 150 people, however many are in our, our practice. We'll have name badges for all of them. The whole staff will be there to meet and greet. And and it it sounds like what you're saying is very much not not that, actually. 
It's exactly right. And they do it and they do it once in a while. They might do it once a year, once every other year. They're expensive. They're time consuming, the logistics. And, and they, you know, they obviously get good reviews. But if you put it in context, it's the difference between you having a big bash and inviting everybody to your house that you that you know. And so you have 150 people in your backyard under a tent. How many of them are you really going to interact with during that evening? You know, you're going to meet and greet people as they come in. And by the end of the evening, you're going to be stressed out, worn out. And you might have had a serious conversation with a handful of people, if that. Yet, if you had, you know, four couples, you know, or or six couples over for two or three hours, you'd get to know each of them. You'd connect with each of them on a personal level. And that's the difference because, I mean, the affluent, they can attend anything they want to attend. They, they might come to a fancy bash, but it doesn't move the needle the same way. And we're talking about moving the needle with, you know, strengthening the relationship on a personal emotional connectivity level and then meeting new people from your existing clientele or from your spheres of influence, you know, that attorney you had over and his spouse to this event as well. I mean, so it's, it's really, we call it the relationship marketing, relationship management nexus. They're inextricably linked, but the key word there is relationship. And so advisors are trying to do it sort of, you know, all at once. Right. Well, because we I have think a big I, bash. <laughs> I'm thinking about this in terms of our practice. You went, once once you're pretty well established, we tend to have a pretty good sized chunk of clients. You, know, you might have 50, 75, 100 clients you're close with. There's some people have been doing this a long time of two or 300 clients, you know, 150 of whom I haven't seen in two years. So like, hey, at least at least if we do the client appreciation event, and they show up like I can make eye contact with them once in the in the past year or two because they haven't even been in. But that's fair. You do the, you do that for the bulk of them, but then you take your top twenty five to fifty clients, which for most advisors are the lion's share of the revenue and the clients they want to replicate. Right. The eighty twenty rule holds. Eighty twenty rule holds. Eighty percent of our profits come from our top twenty percent of clients, usually pretty often. It's not even twenty percent usually. It might be for, from twenty five clients, but whatever that. So you got to do you know your sort of inventory analysis of. Yeah, but you take that top tier clients and they need to be, be treated special. Those are the clients you want to have that emotional connection with. Those are the clients that you want to turn into real advocates because they stimulate word of mouth. And by the way, word of mouth influence is the umbrella upon which all affluent marketing resides. And so I think it's an important distinction then. You're like you're not talking about necessarily building the the relationship calendar and doing all these social lunches and and social events and wine tastings and such with all your clients the whole point is like just pick the ones that are actually the most likely to move the needle for your for your practice yeah and pick the ones you want to replicate you know you know in 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 rarely do we find an advisor who is does would not want to replicate their top 25 or 30 clients and and the reason they, they they struggle with that is they don't focus on them. They don't understand the whole relationship marketing, relationship management nexus. Nexus. They're inextricably linked. And you know it, it's 
you know, you don't just have one intimate event and all of a sudden you've penetrated their spheres of influence. I mean, it's a, it, 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 it's really a lot of little bits and pieces pulled together. So for this top group of clients where I'm trying to go deeper, like how often do I need to do stuff? Like, do I need to have something in my mind? Like I got to make sure I do at least one social lunch or wine tasting a year or, or two a year or one a quarter. Like at some point I got to do the rest of my client meetings as well. And they're going to get sick of me. So like, where do I, where do I draw this line? Well, it really depends on every one of these clients is different too. So you got to know your clients. You know, so it, it's not like one size fits all. So and this is where, you know, you have relationships and you can have a lot of real strong relationships, but every one of them ha- is, has their own unique flavor. And so it can't, it, it can't be one size fits all because then, then everybody's just another number. So, you know, for instance, if, if I'm your client, you know how busy I am traveling this, that, and the other, you don't want to wait, be wasting my time trying to get together for, you know, multiple non-business lunches, or you, you find out what I like to do, what my wife likes to do. And every once in a while, we might like to go out to dinner with some friends or you and a friend or a sporting event, you know, and so that's what you do with us, but you know us well enough to do that. And then your other little touch points might be an article about San Diego that you, you, you found. So you just texted me, you know, Hey, you know, I wonder if Patrick has seen this or something about, you know, you know, about Shih Tzus, you know, or whatever it might be, you know, and those are little just personal touch points because, so you have, you know, you have, your know, your client worksheet on me and your other top 50 clients, let's say, and every, every, uh, communication. You're sending me an email. At the end of that email, postscript, you know, uh, how's Amy doing with her pregnancy? Well, you know, my daughter Amy's pregnant. That's the postscript. That's an emotional connectivity point. You know, you're texting me. Hey, uh, when, when, when again are you going out to um, San Diego and visiting with Patrick? You know, that's a touch point. So, it's just it's just a different way of thinking. We're exp- so, the, the guts of that email or the or the text might be professional. We're confirming a meeting. I'm I'm giving you a follow up on what we talked about, but then the postscript has an emotional connectivity touch point. And so I guess uh, you guys built worksheets around this and the today's environment. I would imagine some people are are like tracking it in their CRM system to do the same thing. Yep. Yep. And, and it just, and it has to become sort of part of your, your own DNA. You know, you, you, you know, once advisors really get the aha, they realize there's no turning back. This is, it's, it's a wonderful thing, but getting them to put the structure around it and getting, you know, just because you've put the structure around it, that's step number one. Step number two is having realistic expectations. You know, you don't v- build trust and have an ideal client with one lunch. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's baby step, baby step, baby step, baby step. And it's a multiple things are that are the cause and effect. So talk to us a little bit about Oxley Institute and kind of what, what you do, the context that you're coming to the table and talking about all this research that you've done and, and, and what you found that works with advisors. So like what, what is Oxley Institute and what do you guys do there? Yeah, the Oxley Institute, you know, it's a research based 
coaching firm. So we do, we, you know, we were doing research before we started doing coaching. We were doing research because I just didn't want to be a talking head singing the same song out there. And I have a curious mind, you know, and, and it just always would, would bother me with, you know, you get these industry speakers and they have the same joke, you know, and they tell the same story and it's a 35,000 foot sort of feel good. But it's more like Chinese food. It's here today and gone tomorrow, you know, and, and I just wanted to dive deep. And so, and, and it started off just so I, I, I could satisfy my own curiosity or maybe my own insecurity that I wanted to know what I was talking about. I wanted to, you know, have a platform to stand and talk about things that could really help, you know, uh, you know, the understanding of financial advisors and what they needed to do to, you know, develop stronger relationships with their clients, what they needed to do in marketing their services to gather more clients. And, and that then led to advisors way back in the day, Michael, I remember this first group there with Alex Brown, they came up to me and they said, uh, could you be our person? They didn't even use the word coaching back then, our personal consultant. I said, well, gosh, I don't know about that, you know, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we, we, we would like to um, team up together and hire you and, you know, we want to we want to gather and have, you know, get $30 million in assets under management. And I remember looking at him, I said, well, I don't really do that and I'm not going to work with you. You're not thinking big enough. And they looked at me and they said, well, what would it take for us to work with you? And I said, well, you know, you, if you target $100 million and you let me sort of guide you, I'll work with you. And that, that, that was my first, and that was before we called it coaching. And That's kind of gutsy. I mean, like, so, when, so when is this? Th- this was, gosh, this was, you know, maybe 1990, you know. Okay, so um, like, I mean, in that context, uh, $100 million is a huge huge number relative to, to firms at the time. I mean, I think even the the Moss Adams studies in 2000 were showing the average advisory firm had like 20 million of fee-based assets. And that was after the run-up of the 90s. Now, these now these were two who were coming together as a team, but still, they were so far out of their comfort zone, you know, and, and but, you know, I worked with them and I mean, they, I mean, they were, you know, one of them was even calling me, called me one New Year's Eve a couple of years later, thanking me for changing his life. I mean, they, 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 my mistake was I let them go on their own. After a couple of years, they had, I mean, 250, 300 million in assets. They were a huge success story. I didn't stay on top of them. And then they ended up having a, a very, very, you know, ugly divorce. And they called me in to be sort of the marriage counselor, you know, when there was already, they had called each other too many names, you know, where one guy, one guy was saying, I have the most expensive sales assistant in the world, you know, because he, he comes in late and leaves early and he lives in the same house and doesn't, you know, and the other guy is saying, what the hell, I don't need any more money, you know, and, I, and the other guy had been divorced twice and needed every dime and they were, you know, I'm, I'm bringing in all the money and sharing it with this, you know, so they, it, it, so it was my bad. It was my learning experience that you need to sort of stay involved. I, I should have been meeting with them once a year to take their temperature, even after I didn't need to be speaking with them, you know, every week or, you know, twice a month or what have you. But, and that, that evolved into coaching. 
And it was just, uh, you know, I, you know, I have a counseling background, so it was sort of natural for me to listen to people. And, you know, I had the, I was doing the research, so I sort of, you know, I, that that enabled me to begin to create what I called a critical path that we're going to coach on this critical path of, you know, this is what the affluent are looking for according to our studies. So we're going to we're going to coach to that and this is the marketing that they respond favorably to and we're going to coach to that as well. And it became really, I mean, I kind of stumbled into a very simple formula. And so what does that look like for you today? Well, I mean, I, I mean, you talk about, you know, the iceberg illusion. I mean, the first, the first couple of, we had a lot of different people who want, you know, wanted me to sort of industry people who wanted to become a coach way back before, you know, and I, I mean, and it was, it was not fun when you watch people trying to, you know, steal, steal your business, steal your ideas, set up their own shop, you know, and all. And I realized this is, this is a dog eat dog world, you know? So I had to get legal, legal on it. And I had to, I mean, we had to, you know, legally have a couple cease and desist orders with, and then. How did you end out with cease and desist orders in a coaching business? Well, when you have a coach who's trying to steal your, you know, I had a coach basically telling clients it was his business, not my, you know, these, these were clients. Oh, so like in the same manner as advisors, like we hire an advisor to work in our firm and then the advisor tries to break away and steal the clients that the firm handed them. Like you had a coach come on board and do the same thing to you. Exactly. You know, and he was a former wholesaler who sort of understood the industry, you know, said all the right things, you know, and he was pretty good other than the fact uh, there was an integrity gap there, obviously. And, you know, that kind of spooked me. And then I, you know, I realized, okay, you know, I can only handle so many coaching clients myself with all my travel and speaking. And so we just started gradually, very systematically building. And when I was able to bring in Stephen and then Kevin, and I created, you know, a sort of a, I had created a process for, you know, basically certifying training and, you know, certifying coaches to what, what we believe is our critical path. It just blossomed. And so, you know, now we have, you know, 25 some odd coaches. We have social media coaches that coach in the social social media world. We run the self-help desk, the LinkedIn self-help desk for Merrill Lynch, right out of little old Greensboro, North Carolina. So it's all evolved. And I would like to say, I like to say it came out of a master game plan from my brain, but, but it was just you know, doing things, you know, with a curious mind and trying to do the best you can do at every step of the way and, you know, learning from your mistakes, whether it's, you know, the, you know, how to hire or, or connect with the right coaches, you know, you know, making sure expectations are, are realistic with people who are hiring, you know, a, one of our coaches having our, you know, workshops for, for the, you know, the advisors when we bring them in live, you know, it, all that pulls together. And so what are the typical advisors that you're working with at this point? Like we're, who's the, who's the typical clientele? You know, I, I mean, the, the, the typical, there, there's really two two typical advisors. There's an advisor who is really just wants to get to the next level and they really want to get better at marketing. And then there's the advisor who's already, you know, who's on a team, already 
fairly successful, but really needs to fine tune their team. So you have team coaching, which ends up being, you know, you, you know, you're dealing with, you know, multiple personalities on the team. You're dealing with, you know, a real, you know, all the issues with multiple players on a team and as well as the team being in a growth mode where, you know, people are, are held accountable for doing what needs to be done, you know, and, you know, the reviews uh, of team members, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, it's, and then we have the social media, which is the social media is a separate component, but a, a lot of our coaching the advisors we coach want social media coaching as well. Because as you know, Michael, social media, I mean, it's not the, it's not the future. It's here now. And what does that look like in the, in the context of your research around what, what affluent clients want? Cause I, I think there's always been this, like a questioning look at social media specifically around affluent clients. I and mean, I, I, I still hear these jokes a lot. Like, you know, have you found the tweet yet that brings in million dollar clients? What is your research show about what affluent clients or affluent prospects actually do or don't care about or engage with, with social media? Like how should I be thinking about this from a marketing perspective? Uh, again, that's a, that's a very good question. I mean, you think about social media from a marketing perspective is really about relationship management and relationship marketing. So remember, you know, you got media and you have social. Social really connotates relationship. And just to send out a tweet and expect to get business from it or connect with somebody on LinkedIn and expect to get business from it is is really being very, very naive. You know, the whole idea here is you want to be connecting. If you if, if, if when you st- establish that emotional connection, we get back to what I was talking about earlier. You're, there's a high probability your your client is then going to connect with you, you know, you're going to suggest this, hey, by the way, let's connect on Facebook or do you use LinkedIn? You know, let's connect on LinkedIn, depending on the, and you're going to get that level of connectivity. When you get that level of connectivity, you know, with your top tier clients, then you have to manage it. You have to, you, you got to be involved with it. You, you got to, you know, give them likes, thumbs up when they post a, a, a photo of their grandkids. You got to, you know, or, or make a comment on that. You're, you're in there, you're listening. It helps strengthening the, strengthen those relationships. And at the same time, you're seeing who people are connected with. So the next time you're talking to me, you're, you're saying, hey, Matt, I saw, you know, on LinkedIn that you're connected with you know, Dan Venna, you know, he used to be the national sales manager for this digital marketing company. How well do you know him? Gosh, he's one of my closest friends. Oh, great. You know, so what would be the best way for you? I'd like to meet him socially at some point in time. So you go from online to offline. So it's a, it's a tool. Then when it comes to what you do so well, Michael, content marketing, and then, you know, not all advisors can do this depending on their broker dealer, but content marketing is, you know, now we're, now we're using YouTube, we're using videos and we help advisors put together little videos and not just like an infomercial, but it's a video of, when you're, when you're dealing with a financial plan, these are three things that you really need to focus on or the most common mistakes people make when they're looking, you know, when they're thinking of their financial future. 
just giving out some salient information is content marketing. And, and, it's, and it's short and sweet, you know, four minutes, three minutes. And, you know, all of this sort of pulls together. I'm struck by the, you know, you've used this example a few times of, you know, I, I, I want to prospect and netmark my way to a particular key prospect. So I, I go to my client and say, hey, you know, it, it you know, it seems like you're, you know, Johnny, do you, do you know him well? Oh yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Like, great. You know, can I, can I get an introduction to him? What would be the best way to, to connect with him that you, know, for a lot of advisors, I know they, that doesn't feel comfortable. The industry is, I think for a long time, but increasingly lately having this debate about, is it appropriate to ask for referrals? Should you need to ask for referrals? Is it socially awkward to ask for referrals? If you're doing a great job, should the referrals just come to you anyways? But let me give you some clarity on that because because you're, you're exactly right. Do you do you think the affluent like being asked for a referral? No, no. I, I having having started in the business with you know after you after you do business with them, you ask them to write down five names on a piece of paper that you were supposed to actually give them along with asking for the contact information. That was actually how I was trained. Yeah. That's the old insurance ploy. You know, they hate it. You know, it's awkward. Our data has said for years, you know, they feel awkward when you're asked for a referral. So they'll basically tell you, I don't know anybody offhand. I'll get back with you. But, you know, for the last, you know, now going on 20 years, at the top of the heap is the same baseline. You know, you're their go-to person. They trust you, respect you, et cetera, et cetera. If you ask for a referral, it's uncomfortable. You know, 78, 80% feel, about 8 out of 10 feel that way. But if you ask to personally meet somebody who you've identified, you've done the homework, you've sourced the name, you know they play golf with them, you know they're connected on LinkedIn, you ask, and you ask to personally meet them in some sort of social capacity, you have a 75 to 85%, depending on the venue, probability of getting that personal introduction. And your client knows what you're doing but you're emotionally connected to that client. They're an advocate. They're happy to introduce you in a social contact context. You just can't embarrass them by jumping down this person's throat. And 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 you when you said something that I hear it all the time. Well, I'm not really comfortable doing that. And my comment back to him, and this might sound a little bit, you know, a cold, but I'm not really concerned about your comfort. You know. If you want to master, you know, marketing in the affluent world, relationship marketing in the affluent world, you better get start getting used to getting personally introduced in social venues and and and, and uncovering who you want to meet. You need to be doing the work. Well, and helping your clients. I think the other you. interesting point again that that underlies all of this is that that you're doing these social activities, these social events, these social engagements to build and deepen the trust relationship in the first place, right? Like if you just, if you take it out of the advisor client context, you just put it in the, you know, I'm hanging out with my friends context, you know, if a friend, you know, if I need help with something and a friend of mine knows someone, like I say, Hey, can you introduce me to John? Like, I I want to touch base with them about something like you know, in a social and friends context, it's very normal. In a businessy context, it feels weird because, like, I feel aggressive. I'm asking for referrals, and 
and like to me the point that ultimately makes is well that that means you haven't transitioned from a business relationship with the client to a social trust relationship with the client because that's why it feels like an awkward businessy question instead of a thing you would ask a friend that you have a trusting social relationship with like hey i think i can help out a friend of yours can i have an introduction to so and so like if i'm in a trusting relationship and i'm a helpful person that should be a really really easy thing for my client my friend to to refer me and pass me and, on. And you, yeah and 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 you, and you don't even have to say i think it can help him out you just say hey listen i'd like to meet him i mean cuz you sound like somebody i should i'd like to i should get to know and 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 your client knows if if things work out between you and this person you're 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 going to meet socially they would love for that person to eventually become a client. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If there's no need, there's no, you know, it's just, it's really not complicated. Yeah. It's, it's, it strikes me that just, it, it, it becomes perhaps the best representation of even from the advisor's end. Like, do you feel like you're in a, a real relationship of social trust with the clients? Cause if you are that question probably wouldn't feel as awkward. And if you're not, that may actually be a reflection on how how much social trust you've actually built with the client or not, right? A, a businessy relationship is very professional, but a businessy relationship when you have to ask for a referral is asking for business. Yeah, and you're asking for business, and you're putting all the work on the client. You know, when you ask for a referral, I mean, we we have so much data on this. So for, let me give you an example. So if I ask you for a social lunch, you know, and I say, oh, by the way, could you bring your colleague, Rachel, you know, I'd, I'd like to meet her at, at this social lunch. I have a 74% probability you're going to say, yeah, you know, let me, let me check with Rachel and we're going to have that lunch. If, if I know that you're going to be at this gala event in town and you and I are chatting and I'm asking you, you know, and, and I know that your, your colleague, Rachel is going to be there. And then I see you at that gala event. I have an 85% probability you're introducing me to Rachel at that gala event because it's easy. It's easy. I've, I've, I've you know, kind of lobbed my own introduction. Exactly. It's easier. The easier we make it for our, our ideal clients that we're really connected with to help us, the more they're going to help us. And that's, that's something that really needs to be processed by advisors. And a lot of them haven't developed that relationship yet, and that's where they're, you know, they're they're still asking for referrals. So the other challenge to this, or kind of the other, I go and just sort of ask generically for referrals is because I don't I don't know who my client knows, or I may particularly not know who my client knows who has money who would actually be a good prospect for me because I work with affluent clients who have money, and it's kind of awkward to say who do you know who's got money. In this world where I'm supposed to try to ask for, you know, a specific meeting with a specific person they know, how on earth am I supposed to figure out who the specific meeting, like who the person is I'm supposed to ask for a meeting with in the first place? And, and you know what? That's a great question. And, and we, we, we track this. And it's really the core of affluent marketing boils down to two activities. Number one, sourcing names. In other words, when I'm talking to you as a client, I have to broaden the conversation and find out what you've been doing and who you've been doing it with. 
Now, you don't recognize I broaden the conversation, but that's my objective. If I do that in our conversation, I've sourced the name. And I find out a little bit about, you know, the Dan Vanna or the Bruce Brody. This is a lifelong friend and, you know, that yada, yada, yada. And I, and I just let it be. I've sourced the name. You don't even realize I've sourced the name, but I, I have. And so we know that when an advisor sources, because we've tracked this in the advisors we coach, they source three to four names a week. Now that's almost if they try to source one a day, they'll source three to four names a week. And then they circle back within a two-week window or thereabouts after sourcing the name. So I'm circling back to you and I'm having a conversation and I'm reminding you that last time we mentioned you, we talked, you mentioned this buddy of yours, such and such. And I asked to, to meet this person in some social capacity, asked to be introduced. Advisors who've done that have brought in, you know, 20 new relationships and $21 million in an annual, on an annual basis. Just those two activities, sourcing names, circling back and getting personally introduced. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's like core exercise. It's fundamental. It's, it's beyond the intimate events. It's beyond, you know, referral. It's, 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 it's more core than referral alliances. And so how do I know which names that come up in these social conversations are supposed to be the names I want an introduction to? Yeah, well, you, that's a good question, too. You get better, your instincts get honed by doing it. So when you're talking about, you know, finding out who this person is, you ask a little bit about it, about that person, you know, you'll get a, you'll get sort of a feel for that person. Then you can, you know, you can do your own social media Google search and, and, and you know, and, and uh, so little cyber stalking is permitted. In the modern it's it's world. permitted. It's permitted. Right. It's, and, you know, you, you do a little bit of, you know, and, and what happens is it, it's still a numbers game. And we, we tell advisors, it's always going to be a numbers game, but you increase your likelihood of having somebody who's qualified, you know, by doing your homework, by asking the right questions when you uncover a name and, and then doing a little more homework on top of that. But I get it. Like I, I'm sort of thinking through this in, in, in my head, right? It's the, the client where you ask, like, so, you know, hey, great to see you. You, know, you. you had a trip, I know, coming up when we last met. Like, how, you know, how did the trip go? Like, oh, it was great. I was off with my buddy Dan. You know, we've known each other forever. And, you know, we do this thing once a year. It's like, oh, that's really cool. You know, does, does Dan live around here? Like, no, no. He's got a business out west and he stays out there. It's like, okay, Dan's a business owner. Okay, got it. Um, <laughs> Oh, cool. Like, did he, you know, did he found the company himself or like he came a little later? Oh no, he founded it. He did it 20 years ago. Like, okay, Dan's been growing a business for 20 years. Like I'm, I can now start checking off by like, this is becoming a very, very qualified prospect. It just kind of build a little bit of backstory. And you do it and you, and, and you get, you get, you, you get better at doing it by doing it. I mean, it becomes, you know, the whole idea, and we talk about three C's of, of communication, you know, advisors need to be more concise. They need to be more conversational, and when they're conversational, they need to be better at asking questions and then listening and asking follow-up questions, and they need to do it all with a nice natural confidence. And, you know, it can't be robotic. It can't be scripted. And and the reason advisors are uncomfortable, Michael, with this is that it's just sort of new to them. So you just have to practice it. It's literally what? 
what builds the confidence. You got to, I mean, I can't tell you, we, 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 I mean, we role play with this all the time with coaching clients, you know, advisors, you know, what words to use, what's the situation coming up, you know, and the real good advisors who master this, I mean, no detail, you know, in talking with one of our coaches is, is too minute to discuss. And so, so for the advisors that you coach, like, should I think of this as predominantly in kind of a a marketing business development kind of coaching that's where your that's where your focus as opposed to like helping me you know practice management and pick my technology systems and clean up my P&L or are you coaching the full range of everything at this point it's it's the full range of everything but we're probably most noted for marketing but i mean i wrote a book 20 years ago on you know, practice management before they called it practice management, how to develop a 21st century financial practice, all about practice management. But, you know, it, it's, it's practice management, as you know, Michael, is, is, is easier because there's structure to it. You follow the dots, do A, B, and C. Technology, you get some IT persons to get you set up, use your CRM system. You know, people are always asking, what's the best CRM system? I said, you know what? The best CRM system is the one that's used properly. <laughs> the one you'll use, that's the one that that's good. Yeah. You know, I mean, the first book that I wrote was titled Winning the Inner Game of Selling. And I'm, you know, I've been thinking about this. I need to rewrite that book. And it's about 30 years old because this is, it's a mind game. It's, it's, this game is won and lost on a seven inch playing field. You know, this only too well, right between the years. And so, sorry, I was just going to ask, like, so what's the, what are the most common blocking points then you, that you see for advisors that, that, get them stuck so they don't get through this? Uh, I, I think a lot of the, I mean, it's, it's the law of inertia. You know, they're kind of stuck. And it, it's also comfort zone expansion. I mean, you know, we're, we're making a decent living. I make more than my brother-in-law who's a professor. You know, why do I really need to do A, B, and C? That You know, there's, uh, you know, I don't know if it's laziness as much as, you know, they're not really as ambitious as once it comes to earning a certain amount of money, you know, and it, and it shouldn't be about the money. It should be always being in a growth mode. How can you be in business and not be in an ongoing growth mode? Because the business is either growing or it's dying. And you're either learning or you become stagnant. And and to continue learning and then applying that knowledge, whether it's sales skills, marketing skills, planning skills, you know, hiring uh, new specialists or, or connecting with new specialists to help your clients or expanding the relationships with your clients, change requires, you know, going out of your comfort zone. And and that sometimes is, I think it probably is the biggest challenge. And so for advisors that you work with on a, on a coaching basis, can you give us a sense as to what cost is like for advisors that want coaching, what kind of expectations should they have around, you know, the cost to get help with stuff like this? And, and like, how do you work with advisors? Like, you know, six week intensive monthly calls for, for a year. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a year contract. Okay. Cause you, I mean, you need a year to facilitate change. And basically most of our advisors we coach, it's usually ends up being a three year plus relationship because then, then it becomes truly transformative. 
They have biweekly coaching calls where the first we have to identify what their needs are. You know, we interview them. They fill out a needs analysis. You know, then they interview a handful of our coaches. We, we, and we're really pretty good at, you know, pairing them up with the, with the right coach. That's the nice thing about being the size that, that you're at with 25 coaches. Like you, 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 there's a wide range of people and I'm sure different communication styles and, and, and personality styles so you can just match people up with someone that's a, a natural fit. I mean, we have a psychiatrist who's a coach. We have a, a na- former national sales manager that's, a, I mean, we, it's, it's a whole spectrum. And then uh, we have our, um, we have our, you know, coaching retreats. You know, our next one is in September, end of September, I believe in Charlotte. You know, we had one in uh, January or February, and where we? I think it was in um, and so San these Diego. Are like a day or two intensives on something practice management. These are yeah, two days and yeah, practice management. It's an update. It's it's you know they feed off each other and there's you know we're we're always you know we're sharing with our sharing with them our latest research and 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 that boils down. I mean the the it's basically about a thousand dollars a month you know there's a down payment and then i think the payments are less than that sure, you know a little more upfront for the know, onboarding process average out. yeah a little more upfront for the onboarding process but you know it's been our experience i mean it's it pays for itself i mean quickly because and this is where the marketing part comes in you know even you know even when you're helping somebody with practice management you know you know, rarely do you find somebody who says, I got too many affluent clients. I'm bringing them in too fast. Usually not my primary <laughs> problem. Yes. They, they got, yeah, I got too many clients and they're driving me crazy. And I don't know if I have the right people in place and I don't have time to get out there and do what, you know, well, that's all part of coaching. I'm always fascinated by some of the, uh, like the, the, the cost and, and ROI on, on, coaching that certainly you know when you get to the the kind of cost you're talking about like your firm has to be at a certain size just to have the revenue for the math to make sense at all but once you get there you know i mean it, it's what like one or two good clients for a year's worth of work completely pays the 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 cost of of coaching never mind the you know the the rest of the adjustments that you get of you know better better team structure better alignment you know i've, I've be increasingly become a fan of coaching and just you know it's amazing how small of a change sometimes it takes to alter the trajectory of your business yeah and and it seems like everybody's become a coach of late you know so you know it's you know but at the same time if you get the right you know coaching relationship and you really create a critical path and you're not just you know you know, saying nice platitudes or having advisors going off, you know, making brand new brochures, you know, and things like that. And the reason I say that is I've had consultants, you know, you know, email me very nastily because our research has said for 20 years that brochures have zero impact on an affluent client or an affluent prospect becoming a client, zero impact. That doesn't mean you don't have collateral material, but, you know, spending all that time on a brochure or, you know, going out and have somebody ghostwrite a book for you. Uh, why don't you take a client to lunch? So, <laughs> you yeah. know? so be real. What have you found? Like what, what do advisors not understand about like building and growing advisory businesses, to the mass affluent? Is there like a most common, 
you know, gap or lack of understanding of like what, what you found by doing when the research versus where the typical advisor mindset is? I, I think, I mean, the, the biggest gap is in that emotional connectivity and looking for immediate gratification. You know, you really got to put your time in. You got to, you got to commit to this. This is why we have coaching relationships for a year. That's the minimum. I mean, because you got to be able to put your time in. You got to be able to commit. And, you know, you, you just can't, you know, you, you can't have ADD and expect an immediate result or, you know, what's the good word to use? Or, hey, what's the value proposition? You know, I mean, it's just... You know, you listen to it, 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 it's, you just have to take a step back and retool. And once they take a step back, this is not rocket science. They don't have to learn a new language. You know, they, they just have to sort of rewire their brain. It's almost like taking, you know, an old historic house that once was a great house back in the day when cold calling was in, back in the day when door knocking was in and public seminars. Were, but now we got to rewire that house so we can have broadband access and we put new windows. I mean, it's a major project. And so you're, it's really, it's the rewiring. And I guess part of the key point that goes with that is, when you're going to do these more proactive social activities and try to build deeper trust, like get specific about who you're going to try to do this with, because you can't do it with all your clients. So are you doing it with intent? Exactly. Oh, for sure. Yes, exactly. And so it's, it's a whole process, but it's fascinating. And it's, 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 it's not as complicated as, as advisors, you know, from the outside looking in might think it is. And what we have found, it is truly transformative because we've never had an advisor say, oh, I want to go back and be the old way. You know, they realize, gosh, you know, I'm hanging out with my my most affluent clients, and uh, I'm meeting their friends and getting new business accordingly. And I'm I'm good at what I do. I'm proud of that, I- enjoying myself as well, but providing a very high level quality professional service. I'm always fascinated that you know folks that build coaching businesses like you have, where you know, ultimately you're 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 selling your expertise, you're, you're selling the knowledge between your two ears and, and, and how to apply it for people. You know, the, like the business you run itself is actually quite similar to what, what the advisors do that you work with and coach, right? It's the same kind of thing. We're in a, a knowledge business, an intellectual property business, an expertise business. So I'm curious, like as someone who has to live a version of this, trying to reach fairly affluent advisors so that you can do business with them as a as a coaching research business what what surprised you the most about applying this in your own firm and trying to reach the advisors you work with you know i i mean it didn't surprise me it was sort of the reason i did the research anyway with my you know either insecurity or curious point of mind i just was instinctively a content marketer i i put out content so I would write with content. I would give my research away. I never sold it. And it's sort of like build it and they will come. And it, and it was just maybe my personality that led to that. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, the aggressive, you know, bang on the chest. I'm the best consultant coach firm out there. I'm just little old me who is, you know, 
very, you know, focused on what I do and what our firm does and very committed to do it, you know, with excellence. And, and I let the content speak for itself. I mean, I defend myself when somebody's trashing me about the fact that I make fun of brochures. I didn't make fun of brochures. I just answer back. I said, well, sorry, buddy, but I'm not in the brochure business. The aff- This is what the affluent tell us. You know, I'm not selling brochures. You know, so the content marketing now, it, it, it's it's just become a natural part of what we do. But it, you know, I started out doing it because, you know, I, in, in, in my, you know, psychological profile, that was the way I wanted to sort of uh, make a mark for myself. I wasn't sure it would work, you know, but, you know, there was a lot of lean days back in the day. But, you know, water reaches its own level. So what was the low point for you in the in the journey of building the business? I guess the, you know, the, the low point was when I was having trouble with this, this one coach that was trying to basically, you know, steal my business and I had to get legal involved. I couldn't believe I was so, you know, naive and, you know, trusting. And it was, you know, it, 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 you know, it, it took a, it took me sort of a year to sort of process all that and then say, well, it's like having one bad girlfriend and saying, you're never going to date again, you know, before I could sort of take a breath and say, you know what, I can build this thing out. I just need to be smarter about it and better about it. So I, I really got into creating a, you know, a coaching process. This is the protocol of what we do. This is how, these are the steps you have to do, go through, you know, before you're working with us. This is the, you know, the legal contract you got to sign and all, all those bits and pieces. It was sort of a wake-up call, you know, a big wake-up call. Out of curiosity, like in, in retrospect, do you, could you have seen it coming? Yes. Yes. Because, you know, and there there was too much, too much flash, too many compliments, and too quick to get started without really knowing, you know, what the Oxley protocol really was. And so there was a lot of signals that I just wasn't paying attention to you know you'll you learn yeah. through it well you don't realize they're red flags until after they blow up once sometimes. yeah until after they, <laughs> right now that's not to say we didn't have it happen again we had it happen a few years ago and and uh but you know this was you know we had legal take care of it a guy was you know this is one of our coaches was having checks sent to him Oh my, yeah, that's that's kind of not good when you work in a larger oh, coaching was, business. Oh, not, oh, go shapers, you know. And we we found out about it from a major firm that says, "I think you got a rogue coach who's stealing clients because we're we're uh, co-funding some oh, of like these, we're, and it's kind we're of cutting bizarre. checks, and it's for your services, and it's not to you." <laughs> yeah, this guy is getting this. Yeah, I mean, what's it? And it it, it, it was, but that wasn't as traumatic because that was just a rogue out of. 20 some odd coaches who three or four years ago, just a total, you know, and again, I saw the red flags on this guy, but I wasn't monitoring the coaching the way Steven and Kevin were. And it was sort of on them with this guy. 
but still, it wasn't traumatic. Though the first guy was for me, it was ugh. It strikes me though that the the response to it that you had was well, well then let's let's systematize the process even more so we can train into a standard thing, and then we'll figure out much more quickly whether someone is sticking to the script or off book. And and I guess if they flake out, you can always switch them to another coach. It's relatively easy because everybody's doing the same process. Right. And everybody understands it's all about relationship management and relationship marketing and practice management. We have all the practice management. We have all the tools for social media. And we have the, you know, the assessment to find out what the advisor really wants, he or she wants to work on. We have a team assessment. What are the needs of the team? So all of that has you know, evolved as a result of that, you know, unethical guy that tried to walk all over me 20 some odd, 25 years ago. And it strikes me, I mean, there's a, a very direct parallel, I think, for advisors as well, that for some advisors I know, you know, they, they try to bring a young advisor or just a, a, another advisor and it doesn't work out and the person leaves and they lose clients with them. They say, well, heck, I'm, then I'm, I'm not trying that again. I'm just going to hunker down and, and hold on to my practice myself. And and you like you went the opposite direction, which is, okay, then I'm going to so systematize my practice to the point that I don't have to worry about that if that happens in the future because the clients are going to buy into my process instead of just the person. And if the person leaves, I'll just move to another person that does the same process because I've got a standard process. You know, and, and you're so right. And, and, and the remarkable thing was the last road coach we had was turned in by you know, the firm and advisors he was being rogue with, you know, they were loyal to us, not him. So what advice would you give young advisors looking to come in and get started today where, you know, I don't have any existing clients and, and people to build referrals with and, you know, credibility is hard enough with the affluent, never mind being young. I mean, the young advisor, first thing I would tell him right away is you get it, you know, just what you did, Michael, you know, you need to be, you know, get your, you know, get your expertise. You want to become a certified financial planner. You want to know more about planning than some old advisor who has had a CFP, but not really done it for a long time. You also want to be out and about in the community. You want to be knocking on doors. You want to be involved in organizations. You need to dress for success. You need to really master sales skills and the sales skills you need to master are affluent sales skills. They need to be invisible, you know, and, and you need to put your, give yourself a three-year play, you know, to do this, you know, sitting in a, sitting in a, a corner cold calling all day is, is going to end, you know, you're going to end up with another career. But if you, if you get smart about this whole thing and put yourself out there and invest in this process, you know, all those little things count. You have to be very disciplined. You got to be working seven days a week. You got to be working 30 hours a day. And I'm saying this facetiously, but I mean, it's, it's, it's not a part-time job. And you got to be de dedicated with your heart and soul. And you, you don't want to just try this stuff out and see if it works. The thing that always strikes me is even when it goes well, for so many advisors that we've had on the podcast, it's horrible for everybody in the first two, three, four years. Everyone. Oh, absolutely. And and you have to be you have to be willing to starve for three or four years and work like a dog. It just takes time. But to build and, trust. I, 
And I and I'll give you this example, and then, then I'm going to have to run. So I have a buddy of mine who's one of the premier doctors in the Carolina healthcare system here, and he I was helping him with a party for his interns. You know, half of the state's interns. He had all these. You know, we're grilling out in his backyard and we had cars parked around the neighborhoods and they were all beat up cars that are not making any money yet. So I'm asking him, I said, so what are these intern, you know, these, he says, oh man, they treat them like dogs. If I could, if I could, you know, do anything, I'd make it more humane. They work seven days a week. They work, they do stuff that nurses won't do. It's horrible. They, I mean, they're, and, and they end up with, you know, a hundred and $150,000 in debt by the time they're out there and become a licensed physician. I said, well, how, how long does it take uh, from beginning to end of, end of, hang out the shingle? Yeah, it's a good seven years, you know? I said, how many of them quit? He goes, oh, sheepers, nobody quits. You know, they were groomed by grandma, papa, uncle Bob, mom to be a doctor. They don't quit. If a financial advisor approached it with that same mindset, in seven years, they're going to have a better income than these physicians. They're not going to have all the debt that these physicians have. And they're going to be in a continual growth, but they'll have a lifestyle that's beyond what the physician is. So as we wrap up, you know, our, our final question is always that the this is a podcast around success. And, and one of the challenges is always that just like the word success means different things to different people. And so you, you built this successful coaching business and helping advisors find their, their success. I'm just wondering, how do you define success for yourself? I think I think success is is you know it, it involves you know family it involves your health it involves your business or your profession and in 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 my profession I've always wanted to do you know to do everything I did the best I could possibly do. You know, I set goals of writing books. I set goals at times for speaking at different venues. I mean, challenging myself to do that. And at the same time, I wanted to be a good father. I had three children and and I, and I needed to stay healthy, you know, and I knock on wood, you know, so far, you know, sort of that all three of those have worked, you know, quite well together. I'm not, it asked me how I pulled it all off. I'm not quite sure. Sometimes you just kind of hold it together by the seams as best you can. Yeah, and I'm not a I'm not a monetarily motivated person. You know, I'm a son of a uh, my father was an artist and a children's book author. You know, and my mother was a social worker. You know, she got an MSW from Columbia back when women weren't even going to college, and she dedicated her life outside of New York City to the underbelly of society. So. So that was my, my background, you know. So it's just, you know, pulling all these pieces together. And I think I just had, you know, good parenting. And sort of that was sort of my beacon. Well, very cool. It's an amazing path and journey that you've had. And, and really appreciate you taking the time to, to share it with us, Matt, on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, Michael, I'm happy to do it in any time. I mean, let, let's not be strangers. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com 
where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the Members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.